You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky, and Theosophy. This is part two of this collected set, entitled White Lotus Day Lectures, in honor of the anniversary of the death of Madame Blavatsky, which I believe was on May 8th of a particular year. And this is Lecture 5, entitled The Return of the Mysteries, given in Berlin on May 7th, 1906. On the eve of the day we call White Lotus Day, we recall the great personality to whom we owe the beginning of the Theosophical Movement. Fifteen years ago, on May 8th, Madame Blavatsky left the physical plane. I do not, however, speak of a death day, but rather of a second, different kind of birthday. We recall the day on which an individual, who acted so meaningfully for humankind while in a physical body, was called to other spheres, to continue her work there. This day should awaken feelings and thoughts that lead us to become ever more aware of the kind of activity human beings are called to when they leave the physical world. This activity can be all the more meaningful if it can use more appropriate tools on the physical plane. Members of the Theosophical Movement can be such tools. They are prepared for the task by the kind of spiritual truths they absorb throughout the year. Every year on this day, we must feel a little closer to the individual who was called to announce, with unequaled selflessness, the great message to which the Theosophical Movement is connected. Yet few among us have a sense yet of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's significance for the world and for the future. Why is that? In the first century after Christ, an historical writer of unequaled significance lived in Rome. His name was Tacitus. Tacitus knew of the spiritual movement upon which all of Western culture has been founded. Yet one hundred years after the foundation of that movement, all he had to say about it was that somewhere in the distant borderlands of the Roman Empire there existed an insignificant sect supposedly founded by a certain Jesus of Nazareth. Should it surprise us, then, if scholars, professors, and wide circles of educated persons nowadays still know nothing of Madame Blavatsky's mission, or else have the most distorted notions and prejudices about her? Inevitably, when something new, a great event, first appears in the world, it arouses contradiction, prejudice, and misunderstanding. It is a law of nature that what is confidently intended for the future overcomes what is small and insignificant only gradually and slowly. And what entered the world through Madame Blavatsky is not something that can be measured over the short term. What entered through her is an event inexpressible in today's language, which has become too dense for such things. Once we make real 
everything for which Madame Blavatsky laid the foundation, the entire realm of human feelings and perceptions, not just our understanding of the world, not just our grasp of things, will reach a new stage. We need consider only the transformation of the feeling world that is already taking place today among a few people and will take place for many in the future. To make myself better understood, I would like to paint a picture for your soul's eye. Let us go far back to the time of ancient Greece. Whatever is left from that time in the way of wonderful artistic works, poetic creations, and scientific achievements, Homer's divine tones, Plato's deep-reaching thinking, Pythagoras's spiritual teaching, all that comes together when we consider the Greek mysteries. A mystery school was school and temple simultaneously. It was withdrawn from the eyes of those who were unworthy of encountering the truth. Only those who had prepared themselves to encounter the truth with holy feelings were allowed to enter. When those who had not yet been initiated in the clairvoyant arts were admitted to the place from which all art, poetry, and the sciences proceeded, they could see the truth in images. But those whose slumbering spiritual forces had been awakened saw the truth in its reality. They saw the God descending into matter, incarnating, and now resting in the realms of nature until the day of his resurrection. To such neophytes, it was obvious that the kingdoms of nature, the mineral, vegetable, and animal kingdoms, contained in themselves the sleeping gods, and that human beings were called to experience in themselves the resurrection of this God, to experience their own souls as a part of the divine. Everywhere in the outer world, human beings saw something out of which they could awaken the slumbering divinity. They felt the divine spark in their own souls. They felt themselves as divine. And thus they acquired the certainty of their immortality. They understood how they worked and weaved within the infinite all. Nothing can compare with the sense of elevation the neophytes experienced in the mysteries. Everything was present, religion, art, and science. In the objects of pious veneration, the students experienced religion. Works of art awakened holy wonder. The riddles of the universe unveiled themselves to the student in beautiful images that induced piety. Some of the greatest who experienced it had this to say, quote, Only through initiation does the human being arise above mortality and above the earthly to the infinite. Close quote. Truly, a science and an art steeped in the holy fire of religious feelings present us with something that can best be described as enthusiasm using here the literal meaning of enthusiasm, quote, to be in God, close quote. With this image before us, letting our gaze sweep up to our time, we see that we experience these things, beauty, wisdom, and piety, as separate from each other, 
We also see that our culture has become abstract and rational and has lost the living fire, the enthusiasm it used to have. As a result, it has a shadowy quality. This is why, at the turn of the nineteenth century, prominent representatives of our spiritual life, the Romantics, feeling misunderstood and lonely, looked back to times when humans still cultivated contact with spirits and gods. In the silence of the night they felt nostalgia for the Greek mysteries of Eloisis. They were the last descendants of the Greek mysteries. A profound German thinker, Hegel, the powerful master of thinking, tried to put into thoughts the images that students of the mysteries contemplated. Hegel was one of those in whom these riddles of being had taken their abode. In his poem he recreated for us the mood that overcame him when his thoughts wandered back to the old places of Greek wisdom. Let us listen to his poem. The poem Eloisis to Hölderlin About me, within me, rest. The inexhaustible cares of busy humans are asleep, giving me freedom and leisure. I thank you, night, my liberator. The moon surrounds the uncertain boundaries of the distant hills with wisps of white mist. The clear line of the lake looks kindly down upon me. The day's tedious din seems years away from now. Close quote. The great meditative thinker who can look into riddles of the world encompass them in his thoughts. Now turns to the mysteries of Aloysius. Continue, quote, Your image, dear friend, steps before me with joys and longings of days gone by, which soon give way to sweeter hopes of future meeting. Imagination paints the ardent, the long hungered for embrace the questions asked and answered. Intimate probings, whether time has changed countenance, look, and feelings, then the joy of certainty, finding the pact maintained firmer and riper now than then, that ancient pact no oath had bound us to, to live for freedom and for truth alone never and never to make peace with the laws that rule sensations and beliefs. Now the mood that bore me lightly over hills and dales to you compounds with dull reality. A tell-tale sigh betrays their discord, and with it lies away my fancy's happy dream. I look up to the eternal vault of heaven, to you, gleaming star of night, oblivion of all wishes and all hopes comes streaming down from your eternity. Reflection dies away in contemplation. All that I labeled mine is here no more. I yield myself up to the infinite. I am within it. I am not else 
I am all. Thought, soon returning, feels estranged, trembles before the limitless. Amazed it cannot grasp such depths of contemplation. Imagination links eternity to sense. Lofty shades, spirits sublime, welcome. You from whose brows perfection shines, you do not frighten. I feel this also is my home, this austere radiance wrapped around you. Close quote. In this way, the philosopher calls out to the spirits who really did appear to the students at Eloysis. Then he calls upon the goddess Ceres, or Demeter, who worked at the center of the mysteries. For Ceres is not only the goddess of earthly fertility, but is also she who quickens spiritual life. Continue, quote, Oh, if only the doors of your temple would part, O Ceres, you who were once enthroned in Eloysis. Drunken with ardor, I feel the terror of your coming, even as your revelations dawn on me. Then would I sing the sublime meaning of figured images. I would hear and understand the hymns sung at a banquet of the gods. Alas, your halls are empty, holy one. Fled is the choir of gods into Olympus. Bare their polluted altars. The genius of spotless magic that was here is fled from the grave of the unenlightened. The wisdom of your priests is dumb. No echo from their hallowed rites has been preserved for us. In vain the scholar's prying itch quests without the love of wisdom. So possessed they still despise thee. Somewhat they hope to pin by grubbing after words, words that thy giant meanings once informed. In vain, they turn up only dust and ashes and never find your life renewed. What if, in that deadened trash, they found some pleasure? The complacent ghouls were wrong, no vestige, not a trace remained of sacraments and images once yours. Sons of initiation felt that high doctrine too full, too deep to be bestowed in shriveled syllables. The soul touched by eternity, immersed beyond the bounds of space and time, by thought now unconfined, forgets itself. Then back to consciousness once more awakes. Who seeks to speak of this to others feels, even if he had the tongues of angels, the poverty of words, and is horrified to find the sacred dwarfed by thoughts as small as words will hold. His lips are sealed, fearful before the sin of speaking. What the adept forbade himself, wise laws enjoined on weaker minds. 
not to divulge anything that they saw, heard, felt throughout that holy night, lest the devotion of some better spirit be mischiefed by its noise. Their pack of words might foster wrath with the divine itself, were that so trodden in the mire as even to be memorized, become a toy, a sophist's article on sale for any shopper's coin. Clothes for a fluent wordsmith, even a task imposed on careless schoolboys, till, at last, it was left an empty thing, its living root only an echo heard through foreign tongues. O oh, never, goddess, did your sons with greed bandy your honor in the marketplace, rather wanted to guard it well within the arcane sanctum of the breast, therefore not on their lips, but in their lives you lived, in their deeds you live still. This night I too discerned thee, Holy One. Often your children by their life reveal you. I sent thee as the soul within their deeds. Thou art the exalted mind, the constant faith, which still, though ruin reign, betrays not the divine. Close quote. This, then, is the time in which Helena Petrovna Blavatsky's mission is situated. Without diminishing the size of her personality, one may well say the job assigned to her soul was actually too big for her. If we try to solve the riddle of why this particular woman was called to bring the message of theosophy to the world, here is what we find. She offered the only possibility, the only channel, through which the spiritual guides of Western humanity could communicate. People in official positions at that time had not the least understanding about the spiritual realities needed by humanity. The very concept of spirit had been lost. Any talk of spirit had a hollow ring. Such was the moment when this remarkable woman, with her outstanding psychic spiritual gifts, was called from her youth to bring a message to the world. No scholar could do that for her. From the very beginning, she saw the world completely differently from the prescriptions of 19th century culture. From childhood she could perceive spiritual beings in all that surrounds us. They were as real to her as anything we touch with our hands. And one thing above all characterized her since her earliest youth, her great respect and reverence for her devotion to sublime spirits. Without such devotion, no human being can attain knowledge. No matter how sharp a person's understanding, no matter what clairvoyant skills he or she may have developed, there can be no true knowledge without this sense of devotion for true knowledge can only be granted to us by beings who have moved far ahead of humanity in their evolution. Everyone is willing to admit that individual human beings are at different levels of evolution. 
although it may not be accepted quite so easily in our materialistic age, the existence of real differences is undeniable. But most people are convinced that they stand at the top of the pile of those who know. They do not quickly admit that there might be still higher beings, greater even than Goethe and Francis of Assisi. And yet this reverence is the foundation of all true knowledge. No one can attain true true knowledge without the sense of reverence, which has completely disappeared from the leveling mood of our time. This deep reverence has important consequences. We all come from spiritual worlds, from an earlier life, in the spirit. The divine part of our soul stems from a divine foundation. For each of us there was a point in time when we first looked out from the soul world into the sense world. In ancient times, human beings possessed an obscure but clairvoyant consciousness. Images arose from their souls, pointing to a reality all around them. Only later did sensory consciousness, as we know it, now arise. For each of us there came a particular point in our evolution, as it did metaphorically for Eve in the story of Paradise, when the snake of knowledge said, Your eyes will open, you will see good and evil in the visible outer world. The snake was always a metaphor for great spiritual masters. Everyone had such an evolved master. Each one of us has, at one point, stood with one whose mouth spoke the words, quote, You shall know the world of the senses. Close quote. Given the proper reverence, all human beings encounter such a teacher when their spiritual senses open. Occult traditions call it, quote, Finding the Guru again. Close quote. Each of us must seek the great master whom we cannot find unless we have deep reverence, unless we know that there is something greater that rises above average humanity. This deep reverence and the consciousness of the existence of a great master lived in Madame Blavatsky. That is why the great masters called her to transmit something to humanity. The guru lives, excuse me, the guru rules in the hidden place and can be known only by those who have found their way there. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, then, came with the right feeling to bring something new to contemporary humanity. Anyone who looks briefly into those places where truth is shown can easily ascertain how fraught with obstacles the conquest of such a new thing is. People who do so and become even the least bit knowledgeable about the quest for truth come to a point when they will stop criticizing the great personalities, stop focusing on their mundane realities. Those with no concept of the role of great personalities in the world remain stuck with these mundane facts. But those who can see through things are thankful for these personalities' existence. This is the only possible way to look at a personality like Madame Blavatsky. Quote, much admired and much scorned, close quote, is how this Helen appeared to the world, and there is hardly anyone about whom so many stupid, senseless things have been said and written. Scholars have claimed that she herself wrote the, quote, stanzas of design, 
D-Z-Y-A-N, Zion, close quote, in the secret doctrine, against the claim that they are transmissions of ancient texts. These scholars claim that Madame Blavatsky invented them, and then falsely claim them to have been transmitted to her from ancient times. We can certainly research this question. We can spend two or three years on the matter. But after we are done, we will discover only that compared to the great revelations contained in the stanzas themselves, everything discovered by modern research, no matter how interesting, appears trivial. Indeed, assuming for a moment that Madame Blavatsky might actually have written these stanzas, shouldn't that increase our sense of reverence for her? No one who spends two or three years penetrating the deeper meaning of the stanzas will really care whether they were written thousands of years ago or in the latter third of the nineteenth century by Madame Blavatsky herself. In fact, if the second were the case, one's wonderment would, if anything, increase. The objections of the critics seem all the sillier and merely show that they haven't understood a word of the stanzas themselves. This is just one example of the kind of obstacles Madame Blavatsky had to deal with. Besides this, of course, people have also pointed out that she had this or that fault. In all, there is hardly any sense of her true significance. Madame Blavatsky has transmitted to humanity manifestations of the occult worlds. Anyone as familiar with the ways of the occult as Helena Petrovna Blavatsky knows the hazards to be encountered along these paths. We must realize how easily passions are aroused by the world of the senses and what precipices await us if we want to look into the occult worlds as Madame Blavatsky had to do in order to write a book like titled The Secret Doctrine. Then we will stop concerning ourselves with the external details of this remarkable personality and her surroundings. Her strong nature was almost destroyed by the hostility of the world. In view of the receptiveness and sensitivity of her occult powers, it is easy to understand that confronted with so much misunderstanding and so much false authority, she was by the end of her life a broken individual. But what she brought to the world will live on in humanity and bear fruit in the future. Hegel's words, this mood of nostalgia, must spread evermore. It must fill our souls. It will find peace and satisfaction in what Madame Blavatsky brought to the world. And this must be ever more clearly formed. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky deserves our deepest respect precisely when we look at her as a catalyst. She was only interested in authority in her capacity as a true student of the great spiritual powers that stood behind her. Likewise, we too can work in the true spirit of theosophy, only if we work in the spirit of these great beings. The spiritual life has become darkened, but it will regain strength as we understand better what Helena Petrovna Blavatsky tried to bring to the world with such courage, such energy, to gain a deeper understanding of the potential of this white lotus day, we must look beyond all the historical chatter and make an effort to look at the essentials. To truly understand the theosophical movement would mean developing in us the awareness 
that the spirit of Madame Blavatsky continues to live for the well-being and progress of humanity. Then when we say that her spirit is immortal, we will do more than mouth sentimental platitudes. We will instead be giving ourselves to the life and effectiveness of her spirit in those places where it must be put to work. For that was really our Founder's only wish, that the members of the Theosophical Movement should become true tools for the transmission of the Spirit, for her own Spirit, which she put selflessly in the service of this spiritual movement. The more the members of the Theosophical Movement understand this Spirit's selflessness, the more they will learn to grasp that knowledge is a duty, and the more concrete they will make the spirit of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. People keep repeating that the main things are love and compassion. Certainly love and compassion are the main things, but it takes knowledge to make love and compassion fruitful. We often find a feeling of complacency among those who think they are seeking the spirit. It takes just a second to say love. But to acquire knowledge for the well-being and blessing of humanity requires an eternity. To become fully aware that knowledge is the foundation of all truly spiritual work, this must be the work of the Theosophical Society. It is our task to follow our Founder unceasingly in a restless quest for knowledge. Little by little, not allowing ourselves to be stopped by a sense of comfort that refuses to learn but would like to know everything right away. We can learn this from the work of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Beside that, everything else is idle talk. What we must learn as a continuation of the work she herself had begun on the physical plane is the striving for spiritual knowledge. The end of Lecture 5